Welcome to Improv Interview. I am so excited today to have Kat Coppett speaking to us about her life as an actor, as improviser, and an author of a fantastic book, Training to Imagine. Hi, Kat. Hi, Margo. How you doing? You know, when I first called today, somebody answered your phone and said, Kat Coppett, and I thought, oh my gosh, did I confuse your gender? It was a very masculine voice. <laughs> That's my husband, my better half, Michael Burns. That's great. So I was thinking about how wonderful your book is. It's a wonderful guide for many people. I know you do some corporate training. I'm a psychotherapist, and I work a lot with using improv in psychotherapy. And I love the way you've organized the book. And can you tell me a little bit how, how it came about and when you got the idea for this? And Sure. Uh, so I my original background is as an actor. And through a series of events, I found improv. We can talk about that if, if we want at some point. But so I found improv. And my students really started saying to me, you know, this improv stuff feels like it would be really useful in my day job. Like, I really wish my team could work together and collaborate and have the esprit de corps that my improv class has. Or I wish my boss knew these improv principles and, and could uh, respond to my ideas the way my improv partner responds to my ideas and collaborate with me or support me in that way. And so they came to us as an improv company and said, how about you do some team building events for us? Or how about you teach my boss some communication skills? And I sort of sheepishly, if not, not exactly reluctantly, but kind of sheepishly started to do those programs because my students were asking me for them. And, uh, and, and sort of kind of at the same time, around the world, drop by drop, people were starting to do this sort of at the same time. This is kind of mid-late 90s. And Robert Lowe had written a book about this. It was the only text that I could find about applied improv. That wasn't a term at the time. And I, I was just telling you sort of offline that years later when we met each other, he delivered to me this email that I had written to him from an AOL account, right? It was that ancient a time uh, that said that I had written to him sort of saying, is this really a thing? And can you help me? Uh, am I okay doing this? Is it snake oil? So anyway, so I started to do this. And then very quickly, I went back to school and got a master's in organizational psychology, because I really wanted to feel like I was on solid ground, that I wasn't just a starving actor who was, you know, doing this because corporations had money and, you know, but that I knew what I was talking about. And very, very quickly, I realized, oh, we've got something really profound to offer in, in a lot of different ways. There's something here that improvisers have intuited and discovered. I've talked about it in very different ways over the years the way we talk about it now is simply to say, you know, improv is the gym for exercising a variety of muscles and mindsets that therapists and coaches and uh, organizational, you know, corporate trainers talk about that leaders 
um, talk about and managers talk about wanting to develop, uh, improvisers have been finding ways to exercise and practice those skills in active ways. And I love the way you've organized the book. The first part is about the basic concepts, which are very readable and very well organized, about the basic concepts and philosophy of improv and how we apply them as well. And then the second part is the games and the breakdown of the games and the explanation for facilitators, which is just because, you know, out of the 500,000 million books on improv today, there's nothing like that. It's really wonderful. It's a great, great read. Thanks. That was my, my primary intention when I wrote the book was that, that I wanted it to be practical. Um, <laughs> and sometimes my better half husband and partner uh, says, you know, you understand that you sort of gave away all of your IP in this book. And he sort of teases me about it. But that was the intention. And I learned that from my great mentor, uh, Tiagi, who many of your listeners and readers may know. If they don't, they should go to his website right away, T-H-I-A-G-I.com. Tiagi's a guru in the field of interactive strategies for learning, games for learning. And I, what I learned from him is just give it all away for free. Mm -hmm. Everybody should have it. And, and I really wanted to do that. I didn't want people to read the book and go, well, that's great in theory, but what do I, how do I do that? Um, although, you know, that would have been great maybe for business. Is that I, I wanted them to be able to go and just do it right. themselves and say, oh, here's how I can do this. And so it's a real gift. It's a real gift. And I think mostly improvisers are very generous, kind, giving people. And a lot of us, there's not a lot of money to be paid in improv, but we do it because of the love of it. And uh, Yeah, no, I, I mean, it's a core, I think it's a core value, right? It's a core principle of the improviser, which is to focus on your partner, make your partner look good. And there's an optimism in there, right? There's a, there's a, trust in the universe that if I approach the universe that way, the universe will reciprocate. And um, it's certainly proven true for us. So, And you have a new theater now, don't you? We do. <laughs> we do. We bought an old, a hundred year old firehouse in downtown Schenectady. And I should say, by way of illicit strip club, it... <laughs> So it's a hundred-year-old firehouse that in the last 20 years, it was a strip club in between and then was shut down, it was featured on the Jerry Springer show and then shut down. And Because it already had the, it had the poles already, right? It had poles already, exactly <laughs> right. So then it was dark and uh, Michael scoped it out for years and got this guy who was hanging onto it real tight to sell it to us. And then he had this vision and he turned it into a theater and worked late at night and sort of designed it and built a lot of it with his own hands. And we have a little cafe. And so now there's improv in there and storytelling and we teach classes. And then upstairs there are our offices where we have our, you know, for our corporate training wing. And it's oh, awesome. Wonderful. So let's yeah. go back a little bit. Let's go back to your childhood. You know, I am a therapist. So yeah. uh, your <laughs> earliest memories. The thing about improv is it always, it helps me connect to that playful child inside. Mm. And uh, anything about your childhood or growing up that hooks you? I know you're an actor yeah. before you started improv. 
And how about your early life? Was it, were you always interested in acting or singing or performing? Yeah, I was, you know, I, I was, and I feel like I was deeply drawn to the theater and ultimately improv because it was feeding something that, that was missing, that was specifically missing in my childhood at the same time that I had a childhood that was very, that exposed me and supported me doing theater. It was a very, it's a, it was an interesting dynamic. So I had, um, I had parents who exposed me to the theater, who were very supportive of my doing theater, um, who, you know, intro introduced me to the theater, and at the same time were extremely intellectual, very typical New York 20th century Jewish, Freudian, hyper-academic, intellectual Jews. <laughs> For, you, that, what, for whatever that means to your audience, right? Were you living in Manhattan at the time? Did you? I was to... in Manhattan till I was eight, wow. and then we moved to Northern California. Um, what that means to me, what that picture means to me, is um, lots of judgment voices in my head, lots of, um, for better or worse, I learned a lot of really good critical thinking, a lot of really good analytical skills and a lot of judgment, right? And, um, and also a lot of valuing of the intellect over, the emo over emotion. And so what, what I wanted, what I, what, I, what I was seeking, I think, from the theater, was a place where emotion, emotional expression was valued and emotional connection was valued, where empathy was expressed in, in a more emotive way and, um, and where judgment was a little gentler, right? Where there was a little bit less critical thinking in both senses of the word. And the first place that I, the first place that I that I went to was traditional theater, and in my training as a traditional actor, I got a lot of teachers telling me think unhelpful things like "You're too smart to be an actor," which was not a very helpful piece of feedback. I mean, that's a stupid thing to say, right? What they meant was. Um, you're overanalyzing or you're, you're letting your brain or those judgment voices get in the way of tapping into your impulses. You're censoring yourself, right? And what I realized when I discovered improv, what improv helped me to do was figure out how to bypass those sensors, how to be more present, how to be more connected, how to be more spontaneous, all of those things that improv helps us do, all of those muscles that improv helps us exercise. So improv gave me the positive action as opposed to the negative don't censor kind of instruction that my traditional acting teachers are giving me. And that's how I came to improv and what I discovered from it. 
And actually, once I discovered that, the next step for me and why I really ended up in the field I ended up with was I realized I didn't actually need to be an actor. I, what I really wanted was that kind of interaction in the world, right? I, what I really wanted was just to be connected to people and, you know, so that's why I like the applied part. So <clears throat> who did you study with and what were some of the master teachers you had when you got it? Because you're in the Bay Area at the time. Is that right? I was in New. Well, I was in New. I I grew up in. I was in Palo Alto from age set, uh, eight to seventeen, and I was in New York on either side of that. So I went to college and graduate school in New York and had my sort of starving actor and intro to improv um, years in New York mostly. Uh, and so my main my introduction to improv teachers where I started studying at Chicago City Limits was my first improv introduction. Uh, so Terry Summer and Chris Oyen and uh, David Regal were my first improv teachers for old timers in New York who remember them. And at the time, Chicago City Limits was the flagship improv company in New York. This was long before UCB or any of those guys had come to town. Um, and they're lovely and they've spread out and done wonderful things all over the place and they came from the Chicago school so they had they had all studied with Del Close many of them and sort of brought Chicago improv to to New York and then I was very I felt very lucky because I I felt like I was one of the rare improvisers who sort of uh, jumped streams and went from the Chicago Del Close schools over to the theater sports side and got my Keith Johnstone training. So after working with them, I joined a theater sports company and had incredible training and development and really found my legs and my, I became a performer with Theater Sports New York, which later became Freestyle Repertory Theater uh, under the direction of Laura Livingston and Michael Durkin, and they're still they still have a company in New York, and Laura is one of the most I feel like underrated, under acknowledged genius artistic directors in the country. Uh, she's really a visionary and a great teacher, and I still quote her all the time and have learned amazing things from her. And she also oversaw the development of some amazing improv formats. So we developed Spontaneous Broadway, our full-length musical improv format that's done now all over the world uh, under her auspices, and play-by-play, um, -play. Ken Adams, who a lot of people may know, who created the Story Spine, and um, which is by far our most famous and um, or appreciated tool worked there and developed under Laura and he then of course became a mentor of mine. So that was sort of my improv development. And then when I moved back to San Francisco, I, I worked with bats improv. And so all of those, you know, starting with Rebecca Stockley and William Hall. And I, I can't even name all of those people because there's a billion of those wonderful, amazing people that I learned from. So, in early, in, now you already had the presence of an actor, but when you started doing improv, we, we talked about it a little bit before, was that, that judging self, I'm doing it wrong, mm. especially, <clears throat> I started and there were all these rules, 
and mm. uh, until I read McNapier, and then that changed. <laughs> but uh, but there, you know, there was these rules, and I was so worried about not playing the game right, I would get in my head. Mm-hmm. And instead of decreasing my anxiety, it was mm-hmm. raising my anxiety. And I think mm. that that critical analytical self did get in the way. Mm. And when you're teaching it, with people, what what do you tell people with that? It's a polarity, isn't it? It's this paradox. Uh, so Tiagi, my my uh, sort of organizational development games and learning mentor, is a genius about acknowledging that there are these paradoxes in all of it. And one of the things you have to do is embrace the paradox. And it's true in improv too, right? On the one hand, you have these rules that are guardrails and our uh, mindsets. Laura Livingston used to say, she used to say, it's my job to build the jungle gym so you can swing on it. And a lo- I feel like a lot of the rules are put in place to help you actually be more creative because if there's nothing there, you can't, you can't climb and swing on flat ground, right? As, as much as you can climb and swing on things. So on the one hand, you're given these rules like yes and because it actually helps you build right or you start out with a rule like um go fast or uh define something quickly or whatever the rule is um go right that uh help you focus over here or they help you get over some habit that you may have that you're trying to break. And at the same time, if you start focusing on the technical aspect of the rule instead of the intention of the rule, you can just develop another habit or another problem that you then have to come up with another rule to fix, right? You can develop another habit or another. So you've got to kind of surf the polarity of that. And I think that, um, I think that's always true. So I think that, I guess as I'm answering your question, one of the things I think about it is that the question is always more important than the answer, right? So be clear about what your intention is and why you're doing something or why that rule is in place is always more important than the rule itself. The second thing is um, context is always incredibly important. So intention and context are always important. The why of what you're doing is always important and the who is always important. So if I'm training this student, they're gonna need this rule to help them in this context achieve this thing. Mm -hmm. And if I'm working with this student in this moment to achieve this thing, they're gonna need this rule. And if I'm, right, and they're gonna be different. Um, You know, it's not gonna help, right? If my foot is broken, I'm gonna need a cast on my foot to keep it immobile so the bone can heal. And that's what I need, but if I'm, a But if I'm trying to learn how to dance on point, I don't need a cast. I need a point shoe. And if I'm trying to, you know, 
learn how to do a card trick and, you know, flip a card around with my toes, then I, you know, then a cast is not going to be what I need. Is, am I making sense? Yes, or am I, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Um, it, you know, the thing about McNapier's book is, so McNapier is reacting to the rules that came before him that were reified and, and atrophied and misunderstood, right? But then his rules get reified and atrophied and misunderstood and someone's gonna have to come and react to those, right? Because it's this game of telephone. The people who created his rule, the rules that he's reacting to created them to react to habits that those group of performers had because people were coming on stage and just blocking each other all over the place. So they said, let's have this rule where we agree to agree with each other. Because <laughs> when people are afraid on stage, they were just going like, no, that's not true. No, I'm not a, I'm not a clown. You're a clown. Right? <laughs> So we're just trying to solve whatever problem is in front of us. Yeah. Right? Like, what do people say? Like, you're always fighting the last battle. Right? Isn't that a thing? Like, in war, like, people say, you're always fighting the last battle. Oh. Mm -hmm. Right? Yeah. So I think it's the same with improv rules. Like, people are just always, like, when people say, don't ask questions, like that rule in improv, someone says, you know, some people say, oh, you shouldn't ask questions on stage. It's not just arbitrary. It's what they're trying to do is say, oh, improvisers tend to have, beginning improvisers tended to have a habit of coming on stage and instead of identifying things, they would ask their partner questions. And the reason they did that is because they were afraid to make a strong statement because that felt like a commitment that was scary. So they were like, I'm not going to make a choice. You make a choice. Then you're responsible. Right? So a teacher said, I'm going to make a rule. You can't ask questions. You have to make a statement. And that was probably a really good rule for those students at that moment. But then when the rule becomes don't ask questions, uh, if it's just don't ask questions and it's the, um, you get what I'm saying. But, right, it's just the the structure of the rule without the intent of the rule it, beco it becomes meaningless because you can ask questions that have lots of information in them and that's fine or you can make statements that aren't actually offering much at all and that's not fine in in my years in practice i often tell people behind every question is a statement so that was a comfortable rule for me but it's really true because a lot of times questions may put you on the defensive, uh, they may not give you enough information. So uh, I, I like that rule. But again, if anything gets too rigid and reified, it's blocking us creatively. creatively. Right. So um, you've, play, you've played with Bats, right? Mm. And some other companies. Now, mm. one of our mutual acquaintances, I for many years before I discovered improv, besides being a therapist, I worked in humor and playing games. The New Games Foundation, Bernie yeah. Coven, and oh. and do you know Bernie? I do. Oh, he's a wonderful. I love he Bernie. Is. Yes, he's been he's mentoring. He's been mentoring me right now. He's wonderful. So, yeah. um, so in 1984, I went to this convention. 
and it was in Orlando, Florida. I had just moved to Florida. I had never been to Disney World ever. And wow. I know. It was quite a convention. And it was the healing power of humor and play. And Ashley Montague was giving a, a video talk. And mm. Matt Weinstein and yep. Joe Goodman and mm -hmm. several other people. And so the idea of the games, I know a lot of the games they do in new games are taken from Spoling games, quite frankly, mm -hmm. but also yep. amended. I mean, I was around in the Earth Day where we actually had trainings. But do mm -hmm. you also, have you looked into, do you use some of the new games at all to blend with improv or? Yeah, I mean, there are literally thousands of games, right? And I think you're bringing up a really important point. Improv is one of the things that's great about applied improv is that it is a source and now we're talking about applied improv right it's just like using improv not as a performance itself right where we're on stage performing it but using it in non-performatory settings right for non-performers right? improv is a huge source of wonderful activities and games Right, there, there are hundreds and thousands of them that are awesome from improv. It's only one source of games and activities, right? Like if you go to Tiagi's site, he'll have another thousand. Some of them he's learned from improv or borrowed and adapted from improv and another thousand he's designed himself. For a while he had a practice where he would wake up every day and create a new game. Um, so I think it's important for improvisers in the field of applied improv to remember that we are we're doing this thing, which is applied improv, and there are many, many parallel fields that are doing really similar things. So, for example, those of us who are applied improvisers who also have coaching certification, for example, we'll go get our coaching training. We'll go like, this is the same thing. They just have a little bit different vocabulary, <laughs> but it's kind of the same thing. We're listening and we're focusing on our partner and right, like, and like, oh, wow. And we, like, really, we're doing the same thing. We're learning how to do the same thing, right? With a, the, the goal is a little bit different, right? But pretty much it's the same thing. It, or, uh, or training, get, you know, interactive strategies for learning. It's the same. And so, uh, so, that's a very long-winded yes, right? So some of when I'm doing, if I'm doing a team team alignment workshop or I'm doing manager skills training or whatever my intention is out in the workplace, some of what I pull from is improv when that's the appropriate and most effective body of work to pull from. Some of it has nothing to do with improv. Sometimes an interactive strategy or game I use is from the world of improv. Sometimes it's not because that's not the most effective tool. So in, in my world, in therapy world, when I started improv almost seven years ago, at the first class I recognized, hey, this is like therapy. These it's are the tools, same thing. Same, same thing as you said with coaching. So I started looking, 
because I thought, I'm pretty unique, right? And then I find AIN, and then I find all these psychologists, and now it's yeah. like an international thing that I've been finding, and yeah. we're actually having a convention a, a convention in Chicago for psychologists yeah. and improvisers. So sure. it's so wonderful, and there's yeah. so many different applications we can do with so many different kinds of people. Yeah. So... Uh, I used to do a lot of training where I would use the new games and games trainers play and th those kinds of uh, exercises. So you probably have different games you start your workshops with. But I'm curious, without giving away too much, mm. what, what kind of games do you like to start workshops with? Like specifically, what games do you yeah. enjoy starting with? I, I'm going to answer that question for you in one minute, and I'm happy to. I, I just want to say one thing before I do, which is something about what you just said feels really important to me to just highlight, which is for improvisers, I think it's really important to, I just want to sort of underscore something that you just said, which is, I think it's really important for us as improvisers to be humble about what it is that we do. Because there's a way for us in our small bubble to get a little cocky about it. And to go like, oh, we're improvisers and we do this thing and it's so special and we're so unique. And, you know, if you don't know improv, then blah, blah, blah. And um, most of the people out there who are doing things that are like what we do, like therapists, have a much higher bar to entering their fields than we do and much deeper levels of education and abilities to get credentialed and other skills and um, in addition to the kinds of things that are the same. So I said it's the same, it's the same, it's the same, but it's really not the same what you do. There's a whole other level of depth and awareness to what you're doing. So, or, or even, or like we go in and we do improv with engineers and we go like, we're the creatives. Engineers are pretty freaking creative when they're solving problems. So I think it's important for us when we're going to in to do what we're doing that we acknowledge and remember the exceptional expertise and creativity that that our clients are bringing or that our you know, partners and colleagues are bringing from these other fields to what we do and how much they already know and can associate to what it is that we're bringing as well. Uh, that it just feels important for us all to remember because we can get a little bit like, ah, oh, we're improvisers. And the um, ratio of effort to payoff in improv is kind of ridiculously high. Like, <laughs> like we get so much reward for so little effort in what we do. So that's the secret, just between you and me. <laughs> so. And okay. you know, there's, before you answer that other question, there's a lot of people that don't even know what it is, and right. so I get so immersed in it. It's like. What? <laughs> I know. But some people are like, oh, how can you do that? You get up on stage and you make it up and that's so hard. And the truth of the matter is, it's not really that hard. You take a couple of classes and you can do it. And I'm not, I mean, they're brilliant, genius people who, you know, I, I know some really genius people who devote their lives to it and are like Olympic athletes of improv. And I'm not saying that, you know, there aren't great geniuses. But the truth of the matter is, 
it's, you know, we're not mining coal and we're not surgeons. And um, I just think it's important for us to remember that there are a lot of really genius, creative people out there who are doing amazing things. And anyway, that felt important to say. So opening workshops. Um, it feels important to say that everything we do is customized. And the very first thing that, um, that we think about is what is the learning objective of this workshop? What is the intended outcome? And even when the, you know, and one of those outcomes might be, we just want people to have, you know, a wonderful experience and have fun and feel great. And that's a legitimate outcome. Usually in our programs, it's not just that. Usually there's some developmental outcome of some kind um, that's different from that. That's a learning outcome or, or a sort of performance outcome of some kind in what we do. Uh, but that will determine how we open our workshop usually. And we have a couple of traditional standby opening activities that we like. One of our favorites is a Tiagi game that isn't explicitly an improv game. Uh, so I'll give you one of those and then I'll give you an improv game. So the Tiagi game is a game that we call the hello game. Different people now call it different things. That uh, goes like this. You divide the group into four or five subgroups. You can do more or less than that, but usually it's about four or five groups. And you give each subgroup a question. So, and you can decide what those questions are, but usually um, they, they might be things like if your topic were uh, presentation skills, let's say. The questions might be, what are your presentation strengths? What are your presentation weaknesses? What are some typical topics, uh, types of presentations you have to give? What, um, what do you want to get out of today's workshop? What are your expectations or desired outcomes for the workshop? So those might be your four questions. And you say, okay, so I'm going to give each of you in your subgroups one minute to prepare a strategy. How are you going to gather information from everyone in the room to answer your question? I'm then going to give you three minutes concurrently to gather data from everyone in the room answering your question. I'm then going to give you three minutes back in your subgroups to prepare a presentation. And then you're each going to have one minute to present out to the group. Okay. And so then you get everybody talking to each other, blah, blah, blah. They have three minutes to prepare their presentation. And then you have four presentations. So what is that? 12 minutes. And you've got four presentations. And you pulled the group. And you get these answers of these questions for them. So you've done a needs analysis on the group. Everybody's thought about all four of those questions. And everybody's talked to each other. And everybody's had a voice in the room. Brilliant. I love it. Isn't that brilliant? Brilliant. Um, I've never... And, and then, depending on the topic, you can just leave it at that. And then you've talked about the topic. Depending on the topic, you could also... If the topic is something like teamwork or risk-taking or leadership, you can also debrief that process of that activity for a long time if you're doing something that's about, that has something to do with the process, right? Because how did you come up with your strategy? How did it work together? How did you feel about that kind of chaos? Um, you know, there's a lot to debrief in the process of that game. Or you can just get the content out. 
That's fantastic. But it's also, you're also doing a needs assessment of that group. So, exactly right. So That's for, the most important part of it. <coughs> so, for example, I go in with an agenda of what I'm going to, what games I'm going to use, what processes, and I may have to improvise and pull something else in there that day because that's not going to work. It's not going to be effective. That's exactly right. You're, you're, that's because right. first of all, I get to see how the group way. So I've learned about them on a a sort of visceral process level. I've learned so much about who they are. And if I'm doing presentation skills, I can actually literally assess their skills based on they've now done a presentation for me. So, I mean, it, but also I found out what do they want to get out of today? They've just told me, right? And they've told me what they think. They, they've told me what they believe their challenges are. They've told me what they want to get out of the day. So we all know that whatever the client says the participants want to get may or may not be what the participants in the room want to get. So you're exactly right. If they're like, I, I have two options, right? One is I change my whole agenda. The other is I say to them, okay, guys, this is what you think we're doing today. Actually, we're not going to get to this and this and this and this. We're not going to have time for that. This is actually what today's about. And then at least I can reset expectations mm -hmm. so they're not mm -hmm. spending all day going, wait, I thought we were doing this other thing. Right. And yeah. there's a saying, our expectations are in direct proportion to our resentments. <laughs> if I expect something <laughs> and I don't get I it. Love that. Yeah. That's right. That's right. That's right. So that's one. So that's a, it's not an improv game at all. Although there's so much that's, I mean, it's clearly about improv, right? There's so many improv principles that you can tease out of that too, right? Mm -hmm. Because it certainly sets up dealing with the unexpected and just going for it and having to yes and and not censoring yourself. I mean, there's so much that you can pull out of it. Accepting. Accepting, Accepting. Right? yeah. <laughs> okay. one, of, one of my current favorite um, uh, improv ways to start, if we're just, we just going to jump in with an improv way, is we... Uh, we start by setting the phase for being, we talk a lot about being comfortable, being uncomfortable. And we say, you know, we used to talk about being comfortable or being safe, you know, like, oh, we want this to be safe and we want you to be comfortable. We don't talk about that anymore. And I say this, I say, we don't talk about that anymore. We, what we want you to do is be comfortable being uncomfortable because by definition, if you're stretching, if you're growing, it's going to be uncomfortable, right? You don't go to the gym and start lifting weights or get on the treadmill. And then when you start to sweat, go like, oh, something's wrong. I better stop. <laughs> you don't, right? You go like, oh, this is good. I'm getting sweat, right? I'm getting a workout. <laughs> so it's the same thing here. If you start to feel uncomfortable, we want you to go like, oh, good, good. I'm getting a workout, right? So we teach them the circus bow. Do you know the, like, woohoo, I failed. Ah, okay. So we get every, we teach everybody the circus bow. We say, like, put your hands up your head and say, I failed. I made a mistake. I feel ridiculous. Right? And then we have them give everybody a round of applause. And we say, we steal that from the circus, right? So if you imagine a trapeze artist, right? And, and the ringmaster says, ladies and gentlemen, the great Sandroni is now going to do five backward flips and get caught by his partner. Right? And they go, drum roll. And they go, swing, swing, swing. One, two, three, four and a half. 
and their fingers touch and they almost catch it. They just slip off and he falls into the net. It's okay, he's fine, right? And then he flips off and he does a giant circus bow, right? He doesn't slip off and go like, oh, sorry, I should have stuck to a triple. I'm really good at triples, right? And slink off, right? He does this giant bow and we go crazy and we applaud. So we teach them that. And then we play category die, which is we, we get some volunteers up and we um, get a category from the audience and we say, okay, we're gonna point to you, ran- this is how we start our shows too. So we're gonna point to you randomly and we're gonna, get, uh, we're gonna get a category from the audience. We're gonna point to you randomly and you're gonna name things in that category. And when you make a mistake, the audience is gonna yell die. <laughs> we get the audience to yell die really loud. It's important that the audience yell, die. I've tried to like make it soft, like bye or whatever. Sometimes I do that with school kids. They yell, die. And I specifically now say, we say die because we're simulating what we imagine will happen in real life if we make a mistake or what the voices in our heads say or what it feels like, right? So the audience yells, die. And then when that happens, you practice. This is an opportunity to practice failing and doing a giant circus bow. We give you a giant round of applause. And that person sits down and they tag in someone else. When we're starting with an improv game, we'd like to start with the first principle of, the, the improv principle of celebrating failure. And we teach people the, what we call the circus bow, which is, um, we just tell them, put your hands over your head and say, I failed, and, or I feel silly, or I feel ridiculous. And we have them do that. We have them put their hands way over their head and, say, and then give each other a big round of applause. And they do that, and we teach them that, and then we say, okay, so now we're gonna have you practice celebrating failure. And we explain that that's the circus bow and we, we steal it from the circus. So if you imagine a trapeze artist or a high wire artist and when they fail, right, when, they, you know, when they try a big trick and it doesn't go well, they don't slink off at the end you know, and go like, oh, I, mean, you know, I should have stuck to a triple instead of a quadruple you know, somersault. They, they do this giant bow and the audience cheers for them because they've taken this risk, right? Um, so we, we say, that's what we want you to do anytime you take a risk. Anytime you feel uncomfortable, we want you to celebrate that. Because it's not about feeling comfortable. You could do that anytime. It's about being comfortable being uncomfortable because that's how you, that's how you know you're growing. That's how you know you're stretching. So we put them into this game now where we say we're gonna, you're going to practice celebrating failure, which is really the same as practice taking a risk or practice stretching your range or, you know, growing. And the game is called um, Category Die. So we get some volunteers up and we say, we're going to get a category from the audience. We're going to point to you randomly. And when we point to you, you're going to name something in the category that we get from the audience. And we're just going to do that until you make a mistake. And when you make a mistake, then the audience is going to yell, die. And it's really important that the audience yell, die, not some sort of 
nice version for a while. We tried a nice version of it, but we're not going to do a nice version of it. It's got to be dye because what we're simulating is how it feels inside when you make a mistake. You feel like you're going to die, right? Like the voices you had to go like, oh, I'm just going to fall into a hole and die or, uh, oh, they're going to kill me. My boss is going to fire me, right? It feels really extreme. So we have the audience practice yelling die. And then we say, okay, so they're going to yell die. And then you have to practice doing this giant celebratory circus bow and then tag in your tag in someone else and they take your place and we keep going so that's one way that we start yeah i love that i love it and people are so afraid of making mistakes that's why that not rule but kind of philosophy there are no mistakes everything is a gift i love that that's right and then it sets up you know and if we start that way what we found is it makes a huge difference to the whole rest of the workshop. When we forget to do that, or if we feel like, oh, it's not necessary, we skip it, the whole rest of the day has a different dynamic. Because if we've set that up, that we're asking them to stretch themselves and try things they haven't tried before and be uncomfortable, then um, then when that happens, then if we're asking them to do something that feels weird or awkward, it doesn't pull them out of things. They don't go away. They're like, woohoo, and they do a little, you know, one person will do it at some point, you know, like an hour later, something will happen and someone will go, woohoo, and everybody cheers for them. And then instead of it, you know, the energy going down and mm-hmm. people retreating, they are more invested, right? It's like they, that becomes part of the experience. <clears throat> now you train ther- uh, sorry, improvisers as well. You're running imp- improvising training mm-hmm. as well, and yeah. ha- have different levels and all of that. We do, we do. We uh, we have three levels of classes right now. So we have like just you can drop in and do a class just to try it out. We have uh, a fundamentals series that's actually four different series classes with different themes. Um, and then we have an advanced class that's a performance class. We're about to start um, like a team series where people, what we'd love to have happen, we're, we're almost at critical mass where we'd like to have is people to sort of form their own house teams and we'll give them performance time mm-hmm. as part of a team and a coach. And then we also have team nights. So there are other know improv teams or improv companies in town that we come and invite to be part of our you know to perform on our stage we have improv jams where people come and just you know they can it's sort of half a class half a performance and you can just come and play for the night oh that's so cool yeah so there's all kinds i know there's so many different forms of improv now but there's a kind of a split in a way we've got short form and long form. Yeah. And short form includes improv Olympics and those games, I believe. They're usually short form games, right? You know, I, oh, I wish I had this graphic. I, I, I'll find it and maybe I can give it to you. You can put it up on your website or a link to it or something. We were just having a big conversation about this. We drew a whole bunch of different axes of, of what are the actual differences or spectra or axes along the different kinds of improv? Because I feel like it's sort of a pet peeve of mine. I feel like 
people talk about short form and long form and within the world of improv, those terms, things get conflated to short form and long form that aren't, it doesn't seem to me necessarily short form and long form. Um, they just kind of get attached to those words. Like um, short form just to me should mean shorter, <laughs> like it's short. <laughs> and long form should just mean it's long. <laughs> but there's, there's all of this like status and style stuff that gets attached. Um, frankly, especially sort of coming out of, forgive me, the Chicago strain um, I feel like there's been this like attachment to short has tended to mean sort of um, funny and superficial and um, kind of like waka waka and, you know, not real. I, I don't know, something like sort of less than and long form has meant sort of um, uh, better somehow. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, yeah. But, right. But there's also, but there's no reason that you can't have really good three-dimensional, rich, nuanced, shorter, good stuff. And a lot of the Johnstonian improv that I see, you know, can be really rich and wonderful and nuanced and delicious. And I feel like there hasn't been that same short form, long form um, division in terms of the way it's talked about, sort of on the Johnstonian scale. Mm -hmm. it, it, it didn't break down in that kind of classist system on the Johnstonian, in the Johnstonian world, or sort of globally, that, that was kind of a local phenomenon. So, so we were talking about this, and so one axis is, is it short or long? Another is, is it kind of um, like, is it, you know, like, is it superficial or is it three-dimensional, right? I, I have to go back and look at what we had, right? Another is, is it, um, uh, you know, is it, is it one, is it narrative or is it um, hoopy, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, you know? Mm -hmm. Right. And I think we came up with like six or eight of these different things. I'll have to call it up and I'll send yeah, it over. To yeah. I think there are all sorts of, but you get the point of what I'm saying, right? Mm -hmm. And, and then we, and then we started to have a conversation about like, what kind of judgments are we making? You know, is it good or bad? Right. Is it high quality or not high quality? Is it entertaining or not entertaining? Which may not even be the same thing. Right. Because mm -hmm. maybe, maybe it's not good improv in terms of what an improviser would call good improv, but your audience is loving it. So, right. Right. So I, I think it would be I think there's a really interesting conversation to have, like if all of those if you where do you slide all of those levers in terms of what a particular format is or what a particular audience wants at any given moment which we've been having really interesting conversations about in terms of programming our theater, for example. Right. Oh, I'm glad I asked the question then. I was going to, I was going to say, I didn't actually <laughs> ask a question. So did you have a question? <laughs> it was a free form. It was, I, I don't ask questions. Don't you know that about me, Kat? I, I don't ask questions because every question has a statement behind it. 
I jumped the gun a little bit, but that's okay. That's because you're an improviser. You're ready. So uh, <laughs> this has been so cool speaking with you today. On uh, the when we release the podcast, we're going to have various links of some of the things you've spoken about today, and links to your articles and postings and your theater. So for people who might be just starting out in improv, a as a master improviser, <laughs> mm. uh, what, what would you give advice for people who are just starting improv? Would you give any suggestions for them? You know, one of the things we say to our beginning students after the very first class that they take with us is we say, now you pretty much know everything you need to know. You're, you're no longer a beginning improviser. Now you're just an improviser. And now it's just practice. <laughs> sort of from, from here on, you just, it, 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 it's all just practice from here. And it, in some ways, I mean, that's not completely true, obviously. But it, in some ways it is. I feel like it's like meditation. Like you listen to your first meditation tape after the first 20 minutes, and then you just have to practice for the rest of your life. Mm -hmm. And um, or going to the gym, right? You get the tour of the gym and you know the machines and you're not in shape, right? But you're pretty much just going to do the same thing with some nuance for the rest of your life. So the good news about that is um, you really can already do it, right? You're doing it all the time. You're doing it right now. There, there is no bar to entry. You're, every conversation you sit down to have with your family at dinner is an improvised scene. You can already do it. So if you want to, go for it and just relax. Right? Like, like don't try so hard. Because the main thing you're going to, the first, oh, okay, let me start again. <laughs> let me start again. About five years into being an improviser, I realized I had a moment when I was about to go on stage and I saw that one of my improv teachers was sitting in the audience. And I was like, oh, crap. Mm -hmm. There's someone in the audience that I want to impress. Mm -hmm. I'm going to have a sucky show because that's always what happens. And then I thought to myself, you know what? I just don't want to take that subway ride home feeling crappy. I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to focus on my scene partner, do what I need to do, and not try to impress her. And I had an okay show. Great. It was like something clicked in my head, and I never again... After five years, something clicked in my head, and I never again was bad in that way again. Mm -hmm. Like, right? And I sort of feel like that's how you judge your level of improbability. It's not by how good you are when you're good, because you can be great the first day of improv class. It's how bad you are when you're bad. It's sort of how I think you judge it, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, so my first advice is just chill because the main thing you learn, have to learn as an improviser is just to give it up and relax and not try to control it. 
which is a hugely hard thing to do, yeah, right? Yeah, it That's is. That's the thing. That is the thing. Like when you finally in your body, not in your brain, but when you finally in your body believe like, I just have to relax and give it up and let go of control is the day that you really will be a good improviser. And you're already a great improviser. And now it's just practice, right? It's just exercising those muscles. It's just a practice like meditation that you will be doing for the rest of your life. So you're never going to arrive. Don't, don't wait to get to the end result of destination of good improviser. That's for the rest of your life. What you will be doing the day you die a hundred years from now will be the same practice that you're doing today. You have already arrived. Just relax and enjoy. Well, I'm very relaxed just listening to you right now. <laughs> and it's like a, a phrase I love, the joy is in the journey. Yeah. And, and just being in each moment not planning too far ahead, and just being here now. And I have loved to be here now with you, Kat Coppett. This has been a fantastic chat and interview, and I'm hoping all the folks that are up near Schenectady will come visit you and take classes with you. And uh, we will be posting several links on the website once this goes up. So I want to thank you so much for your time. And... Come back again. Will you? I'd like to do a two-person scene with you sometime. We I would love it. Okay. Will you take care and have a great day? Thank you, Margot. It was a pleasure. Thanks. Bye. Bye.